really do need a village to be able to survive these things. We could create little micro communities like we have in our park now and sustain each other. So get to know each other. Be willing to think outside the box. I'm Leah Kelleher. And I'm Maria Washburn. And this is Let's Talk Boulder. Okay, so the last couple episodes, we talked about the ties between the climate crisis and wildfire, along with the tools we're using to build a more fire-resilient boulder. If you're new to the show, I suggest pausing this episode and returning to it once you've had a chance to listen to the first two episodes. They'll help you understand some of the topics we'll be talking about in this one. Otherwise, stick with us. Okay, Maria, where should we start? How about we start with embers? If you think about you're sitting around a campfire and it's the end of the night and the, the, the glowies, the pieces of charcoal that are glowing after you've had an awesome time around that campfire, those are embers. Those are really hot pieces of flammable material that have turned into a sort of coal-like substance. And when those embers, those sparks hit the ground, it can create fire, especially if the area where it lands is covered in dry fuels like leaves and grass. It's those downed, dead, and dry logs that we're most concerned about. As they burn, they create more embers, which can be carried by the wind to new locations and start more fires. In the first episode, we talked about the NCAR fire on Boulder Open Space Mountain Park's property, South of the National Center for Atmospheric Research Facility, we call it NCAR for short. The NCAR fire, it burned low to the ground and was burning mostly grasses and bushes. Mm -hmm. Those things burn up faster, and so they don't have as much time to create embers. If you have a big tree that catches on fire, that tree might burn for days. Mm -hmm. And so you'll see firefighters, when they work on a fire, they're creating a containment line around the fire. It's like a fence, mm -hmm. and that fence is to stop embers from traveling mm -hmm. to an area you don't want to burn. You might have a tree on fire in the middle of an area that's contained, and fundamentally the firefighters aren't worried about it. We call them spot fires, where an ember will fly off of something that's in the fire and get pushed to the outside perimeter of the fire, and then you'll have a new sort of fire start. When we think about the Marshall Fire, some of those houses started on fire, not because they were right next to fire, but because an ember landed somewhere that was flammable that then started that house on fire. They're powerful little fire starters, and we don't have a way to catch those. We might not be able to catch them, not in the air, but we can fight them by cleaning out our gutters and doing other maintenance around our homes. Those little piles of things that you would start a campfire with. That's really it. If you know how to start a campfire, don't have that stuff next to your house. Yeah. If an ember falls into your gutter and your gutter is full of leaves, that can start your house on fire. Embers get into weird, weird places. Roof, gutters, siding, vents, decks. Think about when it's windy and you have stuff get stuck in the nooks and crannies of your house, the leaves, the pine needles, the pine cones. And 
the places where those things are getting stuck are also probably the places where embers will go. And so clear those places out. Make sure that those nooks and crannies don't have leaves and pine cones and pine needles or whatever else so that your house won't catch those embers. And there's there's data from some of the destructive fires that many more homes burned from embers landing in vulnerable places than they did from the flaming front. That's Jamie Carpenter. Jamie's a firefighter with the Wildland Fire Division of Boulder Fire Rescue. All right, so it sounds like there's a whole variety of things that we can do to keep our yards and homes from catching on fire. And we've already named quite a few, like cleaning out your gutters, raking leaves and pine needles out from under your deck, and of course, not keeping dry, woody mulch right next to your house. Is that it? Are there other things folks can do? If you have trees that have branches that are really low to the ground, trim those up. You have to go in every year. You need to be cutting out the dead branches out of your shrubbery. You have to be raking all those leaves. There's a lot of old pine trees. You need to get under there and you need to be raking out the pine needles. That's Carrie Webster. She leads a lot of our wildfire preparedness and prevention work. Pick up some pine cones, cut up your tree limbs. If you're someone that has a wood pile by your house, get that wood pile farther away and in a safe place. So if that pile started on fire, it wouldn't start anything else on fire. Start close to your house and your house itself and employ some of the measures that can be found in the wildfire preparedness guide. You can find a link to that guide in our show notes. Think about how to detract those fuels from traveling towards your house. If there's a wood fence, that could draw fire to your house, but there also might be dead plants or a tree that fell down. Make it so that fire would want to go a different direction and wouldn't necessarily head towards your house. The house itself and the immediate perimeter are usually the most vulnerable places. It could be as as easy as uh, cleaning the leaves out from under your deck. You know, there's always a spectrum of good, better, best. And if good is realistic for you, then that's awesome. Do that. I live in a mountainous area, so we don't have a lawn, but I weed whack the perimeter around the house and then rake it and make sure that firewood is stored plenty far away from the house and all the mess that I made splitting the firewood gets cleaned up and put farther away from the house. I live in Boulder County Unincorporated. My house doesn't have a fire hydrant next to it. It's on a dirt road. It's mostly trees and some neighbors and rivers and bears. We call these areas where our homes and other built human structures meet natural spaces, our wildlands. Those areas where those two things meet, we call them our wildland urban interface, or WUI for short, which I think we can agree is the most fun acronym to say. It's definitely the WUI, and it's lovely because of that, right? But it's also the acknowledgement that if we have a wildfire start near our house, it's possible we'll lose our house. And that, for me, was part of what my partner and I just talked about when we bought the place. Like, are we willing to buy a place that might burn down in a wildland fire? And we thought, yeah, it was, it was worth it because of we love where we live and we're very outdoorsy people. 
tied into that because I'm a wildland firefighter. When a fire happens nearby, I have to leave the house. And so my husband knows what to do, what to grab. We even have a list of if you've got 30 seconds, this is what you grab. If you've got five minutes, this is what you grab. And if he's got five seconds, he grabs the dogs and goes. I now know that if a fire drops nearby, he knows what to do and he'll get out of there safely, which lets me do my job as a firefighter and not have to worry about him. It's a tough reality check. You have to think about those things in the wooey. Well, and realistically, we should all be thinking about that. Right. I should have a list, even living in almost the center of town. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, if anything, it just provides that level of comfort. My partner and I, we talk about how if there's a fire coming to our house, we want to be able to drive away from our house knowing we did everything we could. Mm -hmm. So we mitigate, we take care of our trees, we pick up a bunch of pine cones and pine needles, we clear out our gutters, we check our air vents. I think it, it's empowering mm -hmm. if you know you can do something. Yeah, it helps us deal with the uncertainty. It's kind of like taking climate action. And it is all about balance. We want to be doing everything we can to protect our homes, our yards, and keep fire away. And we also want to support the landscapes that help us be resilient to climate change as a whole. So some folks, they might think that having a firewise yard means no trees and all rocks, but that's actually not true. You don't have to cut all of your trees down. Most mature trees can stay. People are surprised sometimes, like, oh, no, I thought this, you know, this large tree that I have that's pretty close to my house needs to go. Like, and most of the time, it, if the lower limbs are removed or there's a non-combustible area, you know, in and around the base of that tree, then it can stay. Right. Yeah. I want to pick plants and trees that don't make big, scary embers. And when I'm figuring out what trees and plants I'm thinking about what might be the healthiest and safest. Where I live, my neighborhood is almost completely ponderosa pine, and mm -hmm. some of us are trying to also get some aspirins to grow back. Ponderosa pine has extremely thick bark, and if you look at the way they grow from the ground up to the first set of limbs, they kind of self-prune. Right? And so as the tree gets bigger, those lower limbs aren't getting the nutrients and the sunlight that they need to grow, and so they die off and they fall off. And that way, if a fire does come through the understory, it doesn't get up into the canopy. The tree bark, that thicker bark, helps protect the tree. Aspen stands, deciduous trees, those are usually in riparian areas, or if they're in near your home, they've had a lot of waters, so their, their moisture content is higher. Ponderosas and aspens, they are resilient, and so we're we're working in that direction. There are other fire-resistant plants too, like yucca. And it's awesome because there's only a single species of moth that actually can pollinate yucca. So you might get to see some of the moths that come with those. Um, they're usually pretty fire-resistant. Yarrow and sage, you know, are great. They bring in a lot of different species. They're drought tolerant. They don't require you to water them a lot either. Another important part of wildfire preparedness is staying in the loop when an emergency happens. Sign up for emergency notifications. Continue to sign up for and maintain registration with the Everbridge program and with the, with the evacuation notifications. So you know that when something happens, you'll get that alert. And there's information on how to do that on the fire department website. <laughs> 
and have a, an emergency preparedness plan, an evacuation plan for any sort of emergency. The city also has this online tool called Zone Haven that maps where active emergencies are happening in Boulder. And it also provides real-time evacuation and emergency information, which shows up on that map. Go check out that map and look at it for five minutes on your computer or your phone so that you understand how to navigate it so that when the emergency is happening, you don't have to be spending time trying to figure out how to look at that map because our brains don't work as well when we're super stressed. So we stressed how important it was for individual homeowners to do those small things on their properties, right? And then now we're talking about connectivity and connectedness and being able to, you know, we have to reach out to each other. But I, they're not mutually exclusive. If you have an older neighbor, reach out. Hey, I can come up and clean your gutters out for you. Let me do that for you. Embrace your community. Take your own personal responsibility. And just, you know, find, find a nice, happy balance. This community connection piece, knowing your neighbors and supporting them, it's something I've been thinking about a lot recently. And when I think about it, I don't know a ton of people in my neighborhood but I'm pretty confident that if an emergency happened, like a wildfire, that I'd be in touch with them, that we'd be communicating and sharing information and hopefully offering to help each other out. In my neighborhood, I I know which homes have someone that might need help getting out or they might need us to get their dogs out. And uh, yeah, we just help each other out. That's so cool and probably comforting. It reminds me of a conversation I just had with Emily Sandoval and Isabel Sanchez. Emily and I work together on our city climate team. Hey, everyone. So I'm Emily. I lead community engagement for the climate department with the city. We caught up with Isabel about her efforts to strengthen her community's ability to bounce back and withstand climate disasters. And she's a resident of the Mableton Mobile Home Park here in Boulder. I've been in Boulder for about 14 years, Mm -hmm. and I've been the president of the Mapleton Mobile Home Association for about 13 years. We do a lot of gardening. We ended up doing a chicken project and beekeeping, and we have fruit trees, we have herbs, we have amazing stuff. Isabel's been leading workshops, classes where people in her community gather to learn how to be prepared during emergencies like wildfire. At the end of the class, We would have a little section where people would say something they thought of, something they felt and a need they had. And what kept coming up and it really like moved me was we want to be trained to help our neighbor. We want to be able to learn this so that when the time comes, we could team together. And by the end of the training, all the the messages were that, that they felt so empowered to have gone through the training, not only for the supplies they got, but that the knowledge that they heard within each other, that they, we have about 18 people in our community that went through the training, that in an emergency, they'll get activated right away. Isabel, I want you to kind of take us back to that day that inspired you to create these trainings. A lot of people know about the Marshall Fire. It was the most destructive fire in Colorado history. But what people may not realize is that on that very same day, those winds that drove the Marshall Fire also impacted the Boulder community. 
winds were knocking down trees. And it's in that moment that you and your neighbor decide to come together and help your community prepare for disasters in the future. The day of the windstorm, all my neighbors started calling. Trees were falling. I went outside and I started seeing residents. And I saw a neighbor and she saw me and, and I was just calm as could be. And then she was like, I want it, I want your calmness. Can we talk? And so then her and I got together. We started hearing more information and realizing how vulnerable people felt. And we started dreaming. And that dream started to come to life. You and your neighbor met, you decided that you wanted to create a peer-led class that would help your community prepare for future disasters. But that work doesn't happen for free and it needed funding. So you ended up asking the city and a group called the Climate Justice Collaborative of Boulder County to see if we would fund that work. And we ultimately gave you the money you needed for the first pilot project. We were trying to target the basics of like survival in an emergency, what documents to take, what to have in place in a bug out bag, what you need for your pets if you have to go to a shelter because, you know, dogs are not allowed in shelters. Nobody wants to leave their animal, you know, they'll probably ride it out the storm and not let go of their pet, you know. I think that it's exciting for me to see how much engagement or how much willingness the city is taking on to hear the voices of people that might not be at the table. And in the context of a changing climate, we need to be ready for disruptions and disasters to happen more often. So where do you see opportunities for more trainings like this? And how can government like the city continue to support that work? Unfortunately, in, in communities like ours, there is not that much funding. I think in that sense, stepping up and being able to donate and get grants to be able to provide these materials just for basic survival. Some people don't even have a backpack. They're living paycheck to paycheck. It puts an extra burden of stress. That's one of the things that came out of this class. The level of stress around climate emergencies was surreal. And people are becoming aware that they're not ready for an emergency. How do we train the communities to become leaders so that they could help each other? How do we train block captains, families, to be able to notice when there's a need and it's not even being shared? We really do need a village to be able to survive these things. Know your neighbor. Knock on the door. Talk. Hear them. We don't know unless we know, and we don't know unless we take the time to really see what each other needs. We could create little micro communities like we have in our park now and sustain each other. So get to know each other. Be willing to think outside the box. It's nice having those connections because it makes it easier to deal with the emergencies too. It kind of helps create that sense of we might be able to get through this because we're in it together. Yeah, definitely. And these community connections we're talking about not only support us, but our firefighting community too. We lose firefighters every year. They choose to leave the profession. It's getting harder and harder to do. The expectations are higher and higher. As a community, we also might not recognize that impact 
This is Brett Kincarran. He leads the city's nature-based climate solutions work, which includes connecting tree canopies, growing pollinator gardens, community science opportunities, and much more. We talked about all of that in the last episode. Okay, back to Brett. And part of what I'm wanting to know as a community member is, is there anything that we can do to support your profession? Is there anything that that we can know and hold as a community that at least gives those of you who have to face those kinds of things some sense of comfort and support in that? Thank you, first of all. We're lucky and privileged to get to do this job. To answer your question, come together as a community and confront this problem. Work together because one person on a block preparing their house perfectly is good for that house, but this is really, uh, it's a it's a community-wide, neighborhood-wide problem. So that's, that's my ask, is come together as a community to embrace the problem and find creative solutions. The more that our communities across the entire U.S. can come together and work with each other to, yeah, work on their neighborhoods, their homes, their areas, easier it makes it for us. It's a privilege to serve our community. Like Jamie said, it's a privilege to work with the people we get to work with. It's a family, you know, and I think that's one thing that keeps us here is just there's such special people that do this job. And always, you know, that you have your back, whether it's on a fire, off a fire. I don't know how many of you know Greg Brown, the folk singer. You know, he loved to tell stories while he was singing songs. And he was telling this story about living up in the Upper Peninsula. And he said, you know, you you drive along in the wintertime and, you know, a lot of snow there and it's cold. And if you see somebody off, you know, in the borrow pit, you said, you absolutely stop and you help them because, you know, the next time, not very many cars go by, the next time it might be you. And he said this whole notion of community is kind of like, there's not much to it unless people recognize that community is when you, you depend on each other. Like that's when community really is shaped and formed. Resiliency sounds like a really nice thing. It sounds like, you know, sitting on the couch with a cup of hot cocoa on a cold day. Like, um, but it's hard work. It's adapting to adversity. And that's not easy. It's really hard. Connectedness is key. And I love that we as a city are embracing connectedness as a key because no one of the players that are coming together to address this adversity can do this by themselves. In all the time that I've spent around the discussion of resilience, I have not heard it framed that way, and I think that's a really useful way to frame it. It's connectivity that enables us to be resilient. Hmm. What a great note to end on. Okay, so we all need to be doing our part to prepare our homes and yards for wildfire, We need local government and community partners to work on citywide strategies and use tools to create a fire-resilient boulder. And we need strong community connections between people, between neighbors. So go outside, get those leaves out of your gutters, meet your neighbors, strike up a conversation. And we've got a ton of great resources in our show notes to help you get started, including that wildfire preparedness guide on our website. 
this episode of Let's Talk Boulder was produced and edited by me, Leah Kelleher. With the help of me, Maria Washburn. And me, Emily Sandoval. And our City of Boulder colleagues. Special thanks to all the folks featured in this episode. Carrie Webster, Brett Kincaren, Jamie Carpenter, and Isabel Sanchez. You can also find music credits in our show notes. And don't forget to follow, subscribe. And if you enjoyed it, tell people you know to give it a listen. Thanks. See you next time.